You're listening to Sermon Audio from First Baptist Church of Van Walsteen. For more information about First Baptist Church and our services, please visit www.fbcva.com. Man, I love to worship with you. Uh, I want to point out uh, something that we need to be reminded of occasionally uh, in worship. Um, those of us sitting out there are not the audience, uh, and these are not the performers. Okay, these, these people are called to prompt us in worship, uh, to lead us in worship, uh, but in worship there is really an audience of one, and so we are lifting up our voices in worship and praise to the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and sometimes we, uh, in that, affirm great truth. Uh, last week we sang a song uh, called The Creed, where we said together, I believe in God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Uh, sometimes... Uh, We sing together about the Lord, and sometimes we sing to the Lord, uh, as we just did. And so those are all important uh, aspects of worship. Uh, Take your Bibles and turn to Proverbs chapter 8 this morning, if you would. Proverbs chapter 8, and while you're turning there, uh, let me just say a couple of other things real quickly about um, some of the changes that you'll be noticing. None of them uh, just, you know, super out of the box or anything like that for sure, but... Um, If we are going to spend less time on verbal announcements, that means that you must be more intentional about staying informed, okay? And there are a number of different ways for you to do that. We have an email newsletter that goes out at least once a week, sometimes twice a week, depending on uh, what all is going on. And here's the thing. If you sign up for the email newsletter and you get the email in your inbox, newsflash, for some of you, you have to open that email and actually read it, okay? And here's the thing you may not know. We can see how many of you open the email, okay? Uh, In fact, if you don't open the emails, we have your picture on it. No, I'm just kidding. That's not true. Um, But uh, it is important that uh, you would open that. Now, now I know there are some of you out there, you would be like, Pastor Mike, if you looked at my little inbox and that that little red thing, there's like 500 emails, unread emails. I'm like, what is wrong with you? Like, who does that? But I know that that's maybe not the best way for some of you to get information, and that's fine. Uh, so we have an app, uh, and I would encourage you, if you've never downloaded the FBC VA app, that is a great way to stay informed. Uh, there are a number of different things in there uh, that, will, that will keep you informed, allow you to stay engaged. Uh, we put sermon notes in there every week, and you can typically look at those even before you get here on Sunday. So I send some abbreviated notes uh, to Griff, who's responsible for communications. He loads that up into the app, and so I would encourage you uh, to use that. Um, also... Uh, get in the habit of picking up uh, that week's edition of First Things, okay? Uh, it's not really a bulletin, but we're going uh, to keep the main things on there. The, I mean, the biggest things that are coming up that week are going to be on that week's edition of First Things. They told us in seminary that people have to experience a piece of information up to eight times before they retain it. Um, and so that's why, over the course of my ministry, you can announce it, and you can print it, and you can publish it, and you can do all those things, and you still get people who will call and say, what time is that thing again? Um, because we're just, that's just how we are a lot of times. But I would encourage you to be really intentional about staying informed, staying plugged in, uh, and uh, being involved in the life of the church. Well, this is now week 10 in our uh, summer sermon series called Walking in Wisdom. We primarily focused on the first eight chapters of Proverbs where we've looked at eight parental appeals and warnings from a father to his son. The last two weeks, 
Uh, we've spent time in chapters 5 through 7 where we find some clear warnings from a father to a son. There's a warning about sexual immorality uh, that takes up much of those three chapters. Uh, we saw last week a warning about the misuse of resources, a mismanagement, an unwise use of, of wealth. Uh, a warning about laziness, uh, the sluggard, the slothful, uh, and a wicked heart as we looked at those uh, verses 16 through 19 there in chapter 6. Um, six things the Lord hates, seven an abomination, and uh, Solomon is describing there uh, a wicked heart. I want to remind you that biblical wisdom is to see life from God's perspective. Uh, it's to understand God's instruction in the practical matters of life and choose to live out that truth in our daily lives. I know some people are disappointed by the book of Proverbs because they go there many times looking for a specific answer to a specific issue or problem that they are facing or the answer to a specific decision that they are making. That's not really what we find here. Uh, we also don't find uh, guarantees or promises necessarily. Uh, that's not really what the book of Proverbs is. Um, and I, I remind you that uh, when we're talking about wisdom, we're talking about a person. We're talking about Jesus Christ, who is the very personification of the wisdom of God. Now, some of you know this about me. I grew up in the Metroplex, and uh, in my younger years grew up in Garland. I uh, spent quite a bit of time, uh, mainly in the summers, at my grandparents in Mesquite. Uh, my mom's parents lived in a, in a trailer park in Mesquite. I come from a long line of trailer park people, um, I, and my uh, dad's dad lived in that same trailer park, and so uh, my sister and I would go over there, we'd spend some time with our cousins, and one of the things that my mom, that's what we called my uh, mom's mom, my mom loved wrestling, all right? Um, don't tell me it's not real, okay? Um, I, I grew up watching the Von Erics and all of that stuff, and uh, one of the things I remember as a kid, I was always intrigued by the announcer, you know, it'd say, Ladies and gentlemen, may I get your attention, please, in this corner? You know, and they would do this announcement. That's kind of what we see here uh, wisdom doing in Proverbs chapter 8. Ladies and gentlemen, may I have your attention? That's largely what the eighth chapter of the book of Proverbs is all about. Uh, and, and we experience those kinds of announcements with some regularity, more than you might think, especially if you fly very much, you're going to hear important announcements uh, in an airport, uh, in other public places, that kind of thing. Uh, when I was in seminary, I worked on a Christian radio station, and one of the things that you had to, uh, to do was you had to pass a test about how to uh, use the uh, emergency broadcast system. And they had this like special super secret code that was in this super special secret envelope. And if there really was a national emergency, there was an authentication code and everything. I thought I was like holding a nuclear football or something. I mean, it was so, you know, so important. And we would have to do regular tests, you know, like where you did that beep. You know, if this were an actual emergency, you would be instructed. The whole idea was that people would stop what they were doing and pay careful attention to this next announcement that was about to come. This is what you are supposed to do in this particular case. I need your attention. Attention. Tim Wu, in his book, The Attention Merchants, he writes this. He says, it is no coincidence that ours is a time afflicted by a widespread sense of attentional crisis. One captured by the phrase homo distractus, 
a species of ever shorter attention spans, known for compulsively checking his devices, who has, uh, and he goes on to write, who has not sat down to read an email, only to end up on a long flight of ad-laden, click-baited fancy and emerge, shaking his or her head, wondering where the hours went. And he goes on to say this, we must reflect that when we reach the end of our days, our life experience will equal what we have paid attention to, whether by choice or by default. And he says, we are at risk without fully realizing it of living lives that are less our own than we imagine. And one of the negative aspects of social media today as people grow, experiencing growing anxiety because they are living a life that isn't real. And they're seeing others and, and they're presenting their lives in such a way that really isn't real. And so there's this comparison thing going on and all that. So what is it that we give our attention to? Our attention is one of our most valuable assets. Our day-to-day -day experience, our very lives are what we agree to give our attention to. Whoever or whatever has our attention has access to our time and our talents and our treasure and our mental energy and, and all that's involved in giving your attention to something. So who or what has our attention? So I want us to look together at the first seven verses of Proverbs chapter 8 now. Jace read for us earlier from verses 8 through 11, but I want us to to kind of get a running start into the chapter by looking at verses 1 through 7 together. And it says there, Does not wisdom call? Does not understanding raise her voice? On the heights beside the way, at the crossroads, she takes her stand. Beside the gates in front of the town, at the entrance of the portal, she cries aloud. Here it is, ladies and gentlemen, may I have your attention, please? Wisdom is personified here as Lady Wisdom again. We've seen this, and we're seeing this contrast here to the forbidden woman of chapters 5 through 7. And so wisdom is crying out. To you, O men, verse 4, I call, and my cry is to the children of man. O simple ones, learn prudence. O fools, learn sense. Hear, for I will speak noble things, and from my lips will come what is right. From my, from my mouth will utter truth. Wickedness is an abomination to my lips. I want us to notice, first of all, this morning that our attention is directed by our desires. That's why we have said throughout this series that it is very important that we guard our hearts. Because the things that we value most, the things that we are passionate about, the things that we love, are the things that we will naturally give our time and energy and attention to. Uh, and that's essentially what we're seeing here. Does not wisdom call? Does not understanding raise her voice? On the heights beside the way, the crossroads, she takes her stand. Beside the gates in front of the town, at the entrance of the portal, she cries out, To you, O men, I call, for my cry is to the children of man. Y have you ever had your attention arrested by something? I mean, something just so fascinating that it just it arrests your attention. Uh, it's, it's a weird phenomenon that they call onlooker traffic. But if you've ever been out here on the highway, for example, and you know that there's an accident up ahead, your GPS tells you that there's a wreck or whatever, and so you're sitting in traffic, and then you finally get up there. And what are most people doing as they pass by this accident? They're gawking. 
Especially if it looks like a pretty serious accident, right? If there's a lot of damage, if, the, you know, if there's an ambulance on the scene, all those things, people are, are looking. We, it's just a weird thing that happens. We're just like, we, we can't not look. Our, it's like our attention in that moment is arrested by this carnage, you might say. And at other times, our attention is arrested by more positive things. Uh, on July the 29th, 1989, I stood in front of... Southridge Baptist Church in Conneaut, Ohio, with some of my best friends, prepared to marry my sweetheart. And like most traditional weddings, I had walked out with my buddies, and we were the first ones to, to come to the altar. And then my wife's friends, our friends, uh, they, they came forward, the bridesmaids, the, uh, uh, the maid of honor, and, and all that. And then, then, then the mood of that service changed suddenly. The music changed. And Christy's mom led the way in standing. And everybody turned to the back of the room and gave our full attention to the bride coming in those back doors. I'm going to guarantee you in that moment, my attention was arrested. Like nothing else in the world mattered. I wasn't thinking about whether the, uh, you know, the Rangers were in a losing slump. I wasn't thinking, I wasn't thinking about anything else except her. About us and about what we were about to promise to one another. My attention was arrested. And in the same way, when each of our four children were born and those babies were placed in my arms for the first time, my attention was arrested. Like I couldn't think about anything else. I was looking at their nose and their little ears and I was counting the fingers and the toes just like maybe you have. And all of those, I mean, your attention is arrested in that moment. I was held captive by them. You see, attention is a withdrawal from some things in order to deal effectively with others. My experience is what I agree to attend to. So only those items which I notice, to which I give my attention, shape my mind. And without the wisdom of selective interest or attention, experience can be an utter chaos. That's why I think a lot of people today are just so incredibly distracted in so many ways. And we are living in an age when information is at our fingertips like it's never been before. And there's so many things crying out for our attention. Well, get this. Wisdom is the art of knowing what to overlook or ignore. You can't give attention to everything. And you shouldn't give attention to everything. So wisdom is needed. It's the art of knowing what to overlook or ignore. There is a war for our attention, and we need to learn the art of knowing what to overlook and on what to selectively focus our attention. What we agree to attend to, what we pay attention to, will determine largely the purpose and the meaning and the value of our very lives. Wisdom says, pay attention to me, ladies and gentlemen. May I have your attention, please? Aim your attention at me. Focus your attention at me. In verse 5, she says, O simple ones, learn prudence. O fools, learn sense. Wisdom teaches us prudence. Prudence means to make sound judgments, to use our resources well. It means avoiding unnecessary risks and waste. It means being patient and not reckless. Wisdom can teach us sense. And the Hebrew phrase that is, that is used here could literally be translated, learn heart. Learn heart. An English equivalent would be, take this to heart. 
Take this to heart. It means to have a teachable heart. And so we see this language that we've seen many times over here in the book of Proverbs. Hear, for I will speak noble things. Listen, give attention to all the words of my mouth. And I want you to notice why we should listen to wisdom. Why should we give our attention to to wisdom and wisdom personified in the person of Jesus Christ? Why is it valuable? Listen to how she boldly describes her words. Noble, right, truth, righteous, straight. There's there's nothing wicked about them. There's nothing twisted or crooked about them. That's making a bold claim in our culture of relativity. You see, our culture says, you do you. You decide what is right for you. You decide what is good. You decide what is true. You decide what is beautiful. And these verses confront that ideology and say, nope, that is a lie. See, truth is not relative to your whim or to my whim. True wisdom is true because it comes from God. Something is true and good and beautiful to the degree that it conforms and aligns with God and his word. That's why we believe that the word of God is authoritative. It is authoritative in our lives. In all matters of faith and practice, we go to the word of God. It's what's most important. And notice verses 10 and 11. Take my instruction instead of silver. Knowledge rather than choice gold, for wisdom is better than jewels, and all that you may desire cannot compare with her. If it was written today, it might say this, my instruction is more valuable than a deep bank account or a really diversified stock portfolio or property on Martha's Vineyard. Wisdom says anything that you could possibly desire in this world that you think is valuable doesn't compare with true wisdom. I think it's interesting that our English idiom, to pay attention, you ever said that? I know some of you teachers have, right? Would you pay attention? I need your attention right here. Pay attention. It's interesting in that we use financial language. You pay attention. You give your attention to something. And when we're talking about giving our attention or paying attention to something, inerrant in those phrases is the reality that our attention is valuable and to give it to someone or to something, uh, it, it comes with a cost. When we give it or pay it, we are making a decision. When we pay attention or give our attention to something, it means that we are saying yes to this person or thing and no to some other things. Because we can't give our full attention to everything all at the same time. Now, some of you are better than others at multitasking, but but we're all limited human beings. We cannot give the same level of attention to to everything simultaneously. You just can't. And I can remember uh, once when Ashley was little, she was trying to tell me something, trying to show me something. I don't remember what it was, but I was distracted. I don't even remember what was distracting me, but she did not have my full and undivided attention. I'll never forget, she kind of climbed up in my lap, and she held my face in her hands like this and said, Daddy, look at me. Look at me. You know how many lessons we learn about God from our kids? It's as if God is saying, look at me. Give your attention to me. I want your undivided attention. Yes, you've got to live your life. Yes, you have responsibilities here on this earth. Yes, you've got to make a living and support your family. And you've got tasks and all those things. But, but I want you to see me in all of that. I want your undivided attention. Number two, I want us to notice that our attention is sustained 
by diligence. By diligence. Verse 17 says, I love those who love me and those who seek me diligently find me. That means you do it with intentionality, with focus, with determination. It's not passive, it's active. It's not simply making a decision and assuming that it's settled. You see, diligence is is sometimes making a thousand decisions to stay focused on one thing. It's seeing that you are are starting to stray, and and as a result, you you do a course correction quickly, and you you get back on focus. Um, There are parts of my week that have looked essentially the same for the last 30-some years. Because over the course of my pastoral ministry, one of my most important tasks, one of the tasks that is is like the big rock in the jar, as they say for me, is, is sermon preparation. And so every week... There's a time where, as my seminary professor said, you just got to put your rear in the seat and stay there. You got to stay focused. And and in today's culture, with with so many connection points and and devices and tools and all those kind of things that are are supposedly making us more efficient, along with those things comes a lot of distractions. And so now, thankfully, there are some better settings on our phones, for example, and there's different ways that you can silence some of those distractions. And when I sit down to really dig into sermon preparation and study, I have to make sure that I've prepared myself by eliminating a lot of those distractions. I can pretty much guarantee you, unless you are one or two very, very special people in my life, if you were to call me during that time, I'm not going to answer the phone. Because I've got to stay focused on what's most important. Our attention is sustained by diligence. It doesn't, it doesn't happen easily. I mean, you think about it. We are now uh, 16 or so minutes into this sermon. I wonder how many of you could say that you have given your full attention. Or have you already started thinking about something else? Like there's a light bulb out right there in that one string of lights right there. I know some of you are you're, you're that kind of person. Like, and some of you've already counted those lights. Like you know how many there are on both of those strings of lights, right? <laughs> when I was younger, I was one of those people. I would have counted the ceiling tiles probably, or the number of light fixtures in the room, or I would certainly be thinking about what we're going to have for lunch at the end of the service. It takes work. It takes diligence to stay focused. And that is certainly true in life. But there are benefits to those who do the hard work to remain diligent, to to stay focused on what's most important. Now remember, these aren't guarantees or fixed promises. The book of Proverbs is a book of principles about how life often works when we live according to God's design. They're not guarantees about how life always works. But I want us to to look at some of these benefits that we find here in Proverbs chapter 8. Number one, a life marked by wisdom. If you look at verses 12 and 14, it says, I, wisdom, dwell with prudence, and I find knowledge and discretion. Verse 14, I have counsel and sound wisdom. I have insight. I have strength. So when we diligently seek God's wisdom, give him our attention, God begins to shape our lives by his wisdom. And depending on our capacity and according to his grace, he gives us discernment and knowledge and through studying God's word and prayer and drawing near to him, as Jay said this morning. We have access to the counsel of God, which gives insight into our lives. A life marked by wisdom. Number two, moral backbone. Moral backbone. Verse 13 says, the fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. 
pride and arrogance and the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. So when we diligently seek God's wisdom, when we give it our attention, our moral compass is aligned with him so that we hate the things that God hates and we love the things that he loves. One of the marks of a maturing disciple of Jesus Christ is that we are willing to say the same thing about our sin that God says about our sin. We hate the things that God hates, love the, thing, the things that God loves, a moral backbone. And when we live in an age like we do of moral relativity and so many viewpoints and worldviews and all those things vying for our attention, trying to distract us, it's so important that we diligently give our attention to wisdom. Number three, leadership and godly oversight. Verses 15 and 16, it says, By me kings reign and rulers decree what is just. By me princes rule and nobles, all who govern justly. When we diligently seek God's wisdom, God often blesses us with, with positions of leadership where we have the opportunity to lead with justice and righteousness. And if you don't pray regularly for our government officials and other leaders, our municipal leaders, you should. What you should be praying is that God would grant them wisdom and discernment and discretion to lead in justice and righteousness. And as you have uh, opportunity to lead out in, in various ways, you should be praying the same thing for yourself. Number four, a life of blessing. Verses 18 and 19, it says, Riches and honor are with me, enduring wealth and righteousness. My fruit is better than gold, even fine gold, and my yield than choice silver. So when we seek God's wisdom, we put ourselves in the best possible position to live a life of blessing. A place where we can flourish. Blessed both by the invaluable the riches of a life connected to God and also a life that is marked by riches and honor and wealth and righteousness. And again, this is not a prosperity promise. This is not the prosperity gospel. The following God will make you rich. You see, our motivation to journey on the path of wisdom and to give our attention to wisdom and righteousness is not to get rich. Foolish decision-making does make it difficult to experience a life of financial blessing and material blessing. And at the same time, as God does financially bless those who seek him, he does that as he sees fit. A life of blessing. And finally, number five, faithfulness to the end. If you look at verses 20 and 21, it says, I walk in the way of righteousness, in the paths of justice, granting an inheritance to those who love me and filling their treasuries. We finally see here that those who diligently seek God's wisdom are faithful to the end as they walk in the way of righteousness and receive the inheritance that is given to all who love God. And as his adopted children, we are co-heirs with Christ and our inheritance is unfading. It's imperishable and preserved in heaven awaiting all who are faithful to the end. When we give our full and undivided attention to God and to his wisdom and seeking after him and becoming more like Jesus, we learn what holds the most value. But there's also some distractions. Anybody in the room who's a first responder would tell you that many traffic accidents, maybe most, are caused by someone who's distracted. 
It's a distracted driver. They're texting or they're doing something that they shouldn't be doing. They're not giving their full attention to the road or to, to what they should be doing. It's easy for us to get distracted, and the same thing is true in life. So what are some distractions? Well, love of the world. Love of the world. This is an age-old temptation that ever-increasing joy is somehow found outside of God and his purposes for your life. This is the temptation that was in the Garden of Eden and lured the first humans to eat the forbidden fruit. This is the lie that we believe every time we turn away from God to the pleasures of this world, thinking that God is, is somehow holding back from us what we really need to be complete, something that God is keeping from me. He's just trying to ruin all of our fun. This is where we compare our lives to others around us, where we want to enjoy the lifestyles of those around us, where, where we think if I could just have more money or more status or more pleasure, this is where we choose immediate gratification over long-term satisfaction. These are all distractions, ultimately. When you aim your attention on material things, you can't give God your full attention. That's why scripture says the love of money is the root of all evil because it will motivate us to compromise many times, to give our attention to things that are not eternal. See, we'd like to think that we can keep one eye on God and one eye on pursuing my fill of vanity fair. But that's another lie. God is not after our divided attention. God deserves our and demands our undivided attention, our undivided hearts. Love of the world. How about the routine of everyday life? So much of our lives are a routine. They're ordinary. We get up, we go to work, we go to school, we eat a few meals, we watch some Netflix, catch a game, and we kind of do it all over again. Our lives, our calendars can look the same from week to week, and we can get lulled into the boredom and the busyness of it all. We can believe the lie that, 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 that the everyday, ordinary realities of life are meaningless and miss all that God has for us in the beautiful, meaningful, ordinary. The ordinary. Isn't it amazing how we get sucked into this ideology that somehow we've got to make it to the next spectacular thing? That next mind-blowing experience or, or whatever. God, God longs to just commune with us in the ordinary. He longs for us to, to see him in the ordinary. That's why it's so important that we view our work as worship. You say, but, but my job, it's just, our work should be viewed as worship. The routine of everyday life. And then thirdly, suffering and trial. You live enough life and you will experience some suffering. I was thinking about our church this week even. And many names came to mind of specific suffering in our midst. There are people in our church who are right now experiencing financial instability. Some dealing with chronic illness and pain. Some fighting a pull into addiction. How about uh, the loss of miscarriage? The loneliness of relationships not working out. And those are just a few. The list goes on and on and on of different ways, varieties, we would say, of, of suffering and trial. 
And when we feel the pain, when we experience the loss, it's easy, even sometimes understandable, to turn your attention away from God and only see the pain. Only see the pain. It's like in that moment, in the middle of the night, when you stub your toe on the foot of the bed, and it's like all your attention goes to that toe. And you're hopping, and you're just like, oh my goodness. Like, that's, that's sometimes what we do in life. Now, God doesn't ask us to stoically go through suffering and pain, gritting our teeth and burying our pain like it's not there. So when it hurts, you're encouraged to feel. When you need to cry, cry. When you need to talk to someone, talk to someone. But most importantly, don't believe the lie that your pain and suffering are meaningless examples of living in a cruel world with an uncaring God who sits idly by. For the believer, every ounce of our pain, every second we experience suffering, the Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, for this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So what that means is for the believer, our suffering is never meaningless. It's never wasted. It's always doing something in our life. Presently, as it builds our character and strengthens us, as it produces an eternal glory beyond comparison to the suffering that we are currently experiencing. And did you notice what he said to do there as he wrote to the Corinthians? Fix your eyes not on the things that are seen, on your suffering, but fix your eyes on what is unseen. On God himself who is preparing an eternal weight of glory so that none of our suffering is meaningless or wasted. I think it was John Piper who wrote a book entitled Don't Waste Your Cancer. And in that he's talking about how God is working even in the midst of our suffering and our trials. And he's shaping us. And then thirdly, I want us to notice this morning, our attention is fueled by delight. If you look at verses 22 through 31, um, these verses, they take us back to before creation, before time even began, before there was anything, before creation, God existed. And here we see that wisdom was active in the work of creation. Wisdom was right beside God, like a master workman bringing the plans of God to fruition. Just look at some of the language that we see here. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of gold. Ages ago I was set up at the first, before the beginning of the earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water, before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills, I was brought forth. Before he had made the earth with its fields, or the, the first of the dust of the world, when he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle in the face of the deep. You see the language that's here? It reminds us of Genesis chapter 1 where we see God speaking creation into existence, the verbal expression of God's wisdom. That's why you see this pattern in Genesis chapter 1 of, and God said, and God said, and God said. That's God's word. The verbal expression of God's wisdom, his word, bringing forth creation itself. When you read Genesis 1, there's this refrain on repeat. And God said... And it was so. 
And God said, and it was so. We see God the Father creating by the word. And what is veiled and hidden in the shadows here of Proverbs chapter 8 is revealed, uh, revealed and on glorious display when we turn to the New Testament. That's why we see in John chapter 1 this amazing connection again to Genesis. It says there in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And in the light of the New Testament, we see that there's more to wisdom than first meets the eye. That this personification, again, is actually a person. And his name is Jesus. The wisdom of God is the word of God who is the son of God who became flesh and dwelt among us. And as we've said every week at the start of the message, the apostle Paul makes this connection. And if you continue to read further there in that first chapter of 1 Corinthians, he says, and because of him you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God. So here we have the Son of God working next to God the Father, and the Son was daily the delight of the Father, and the Son was rejoicing before the Father. And not only are they delighting in each other, they are delighting in the children of man, in us. God delights in you. That's an invitation to join him in a relationship of ever-increasing joy and delight. Again, John Piper, in reflecting on why God would delight in us, once said, God makes much of us precisely so that we will have a greater capacity to enjoy him. I went to an event Friday night up at our Grayson College BSM, Baptist Student Ministries, and it was a great connecting event. Uh, all the new students moving onto campus, and uh, most of the residential students there are athletes, and most of them are international students, so it was a great opportunity to to connect and um, just love those students and let them know uh, what uh, the churches of our association offer and how we would love to, to get to know them. And it really wasn't an evangelistic event necessarily. It was really a kind of a connecting event. But, of course, any of us wanted to be uh, sensitive to maybe what God was doing in that moment. And I was having a conversation with this guy named Ryan. And after a point, just kind of in the flow of our conversation there, he asked the question. I've never had a person tee up the gospel for me quite like this guy did. He said, I'm curious, how did you get to God? I said, well, actually, I didn't. God came down to me in the person of Jesus Christ. And I shared with him Romans 5, 8, where it says, but God demonstrates, shows his love for us in that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. God delighted in us to the point that he was willing to die to prove his love for you and me. That's why virtually every week when I say you are loved, yeah, I'm talking about you're loved very imperfectly by a pastor. But you are loved perfectly by a gracious, merciful God who's not waiting for you to get yourself cleaned up enough so that you are lovable. No. In that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. And when that truth becomes real to you, not in theory or abstraction, it will fuel your delight in God. 
And the object of our greatest delight will be the object of our undivided, fully arrested attention. Who or what has your attention? Wisdom's crying out here, ladies and gentlemen, may I have your attention, please? It's as if God is saying, look at me. Look at me. And you can see me in the person of my son, Jesus Christ. He's, he's on display. He's the very icon, is the word, of God in the flesh. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed for just a moment. Much like our prayer focus, we want this time to be a time that's used very intentionally. What a shame it would be for us to come together each week and just listen to a sermon and leave here and in no way be impacted by what we've heard. Or to come together and just receive some information. should be our desire that we be transformed by the truth of God's word and by the Holy Spirit. So this is a time when you and I decide what we will do with what we've heard. Will we just be hearers of the word or will we be doers of the word? Will we be honest enough with God in this moment to ask him to reveal to us any area of our life that may need attention? A course correction? Maybe it's time for us to say the same thing in this moment about our sin that God says about our sin. I don't know what that may look like for you. Maybe that some of you this morning have never turned from your sin to faith in Jesus Christ. Maybe you're like the guy that I had a conversation with and you're thinking that somehow, some way, I've got to get to God. I've got to be good enough. I've got to do enough good things. I've got to do more good things than bad things. And hopefully, hopefully God will, will, will love me. Well, the Bible clearly states that that's not how God's love works. It's not by works of righteousness, it says in Titus, which we have done. But according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. There may be some here today who would say, Pastor, if I'm just completely honest, I'm distracted. My testimony is one of faith in Christ, but I rarely give my full and undivided attention to him. Maybe it's because you're distracted by the things of this world. Maybe it's because you're distracted by the busyness of the ordinary life that you live. Maybe you're in a season of suffering and trial. I don't know what may have you distracted. But my hope and prayer is that today, before you leave this place, you will refocus and determine to give your full and undivided attention to the one who made you, formed you, loves you, desires to have relationship with you. So, Father, do a work in our hearts and lives in this time. 
Lord, I pray that this not just be a tag on the end of the service, but that we would truly turn our eyes upon Jesus. We thank you and we praise you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from First Baptist Church of Van Alstine. For more information about our church, visit www.fbcva.com.